0: If you've got a Bible this morning, we're going to be finishing up our bird's-eye view of the book of Genesis. We've been in Genesis now, this is the tenth week of the study and we're finishing it up today, believe it or not. For that reason, we are covering a lot more ground this morning than I am going to subject you to by by reading. We're covering the entire story of Joseph, who's the last major figure of the major figures in Genesis. And his story covers covers chapters 37 all the way through 50. Go ahead and turn there, because we're going to be walking through these passages and referring to a lot of details in these chapters. But we're only going to read together from, from chapter 45. First, though, let me set this up for us. I think the reason that this Joseph story is in here is to engage us with one of the questions that has been bothering people ever since time began. If there's a God out there who's loving and he's also powerful enough to see his will done, why is there so much suffering in the world? It's a simple question. It doesn't take any kind of explanation for us to immediately understand why it matters and to see from the things that even we have experienced in the world uh, why st- trying to deny the existence of suffering is just pointless. What it has to be is explained. I remember one of the most interesting books that I read in college that, that really addressed this question was a book by a French philosopher named Voltaire. Voltaire. He was writing in the, in the 1700s at the peak of what's known to us as the uh, Enlightenment, a time of optimism, a time where it seemed like humans could accomplish just about anything that they set their minds to. They'd seen so much growth in areas of science and thinking and human society, and, and it just seemed like the sky was the limit. There was optimism everywhere. And then... They lived through a series of severe crises. Voltaire in particular saw the Seven Years' War unfold where there was all of this suffering and death in France in particular who came up on the losing side of that war. Then he he observes this major earthquake that happens outside Lisbon that causes a tsunami and, and fires and all of this destruction, devastation, loss of life in Lisbon. That was in the 1750s. And in response to that, he writes a novel called Candide. The novel is a satire on all of this optimism that he saw around him, on the claims made by religious and secular people alike that this world is as it should be. That The the quote that comes up over and over again, it's the best of all possible worlds, that all is for the best and the best of all possible worlds comes up again and again and again. It's a satire on that. He tells the story of this little young guy named Candide who falls in love with a, a girl on the plantation, I guess, that he was working on, some sort of manor, some sort of big European household. And so he gets banished. And while he was still on this household, he was under the tutelage of a professor by the name of Pangloss. And this guy was a proponent of optimism, of the best of all possible worlds is the one that we've got. And so whatever happens is, had to happen, and, it, and it's the best. The rest of the story from that point is testing that claim over and over and over again, and it is just a comedy of errors. I mean, one thing after another happens to this guy. Just as he seems to get his feet under him, they're ripped right out from under him again. I won't go into all of the details, but it's a great read. It's his his quest to get to reunite with this. This long-lost love that had caused all these problems to begin with takes him through the Spanish Inquisition all the way into the New World, to El Dorado, where he finds all this wealth, but then has to use it to buy his freedom from these pirates who capture him. So every time he seems to have something good in his hands, he has to give it up just to survive. And it ends, ironically enough, with him reunited with his long-lost love after this whole long journey around the world, and he finds out that she really isn't that attractive to him anymore, and her personality is kind of disagreeable. So he ends up living his li- the rest of his life with this woman who had driven him through all this quest, and it's not who he thought it was. The whole point of the story is that this is not the best of all possible worlds. And if you think that it is, you're crazy. It's a compelling book. It's not hard to understand why he saw the world that way. It's maybe even harder to understand how we could claim that the world is under the control of a God whose providence is benevolent, a God who wants our good. But when I read that story, and the the sort of biting satire that that it applies to even things like the Bible's message, I think the thing that impresses me the most is how little it really gets the Bible's perspective on suffering. I think for those of us who have struggled in the past with the existence of a God who could allow this kind of evil, one of the things that that we struggle with is to see the Bible's message as a nuanced one. It's not just so simple that the Bible is saying, this is the best of all possible worlds. Trust me, the suffering is not real. This is really good. All these things that are happening are what they should be. It's not quite that simple. And I don't know of any of any passage in Scripture that illustrates the complexity of the Bible's take on suffering better than the Joseph story at the end of Genesis. In fact, I think that... that that giving us a sense of the complexity of the Bible's take on suffering is the main reason this story is even in the Bible. Joseph, after all, is not the chosen successor in this line of succession we've been tracing through Genesis. One of the things we've been tracing all along is that what matters is who from each family is going to carry on the promised seed that was going to lead to the one who would crush evil forever. It was Abraham, and, and, and all of the, the story turned on him having a, a just heir, and he, he's delivered Isaac. Isaac is the one who's going to carry it forward. And then with Isaac, it was who is going to be this chosen one who's going to carry on the blessing. Is it going to be Esau, or is it going to be Jacob? And, of course, it turns out to be Jacob. Then we get to Jacob's sons, of whom Joseph is one, and Joseph gets all this attention, but he's not even the guy who, is, who it said the blessing was going to pass through. It's Judah, his older brother, that's the one that ultimately leads to Jesus. So why 13 chapters of attention on a guy who's not even the focal point of this tracing of the blessing? The line of succession. I think part of the answer is that it explains how... Israel got into Egypt in the first place so that, they could get, so that they could get liberated from Egypt in the next book in Exodus. But a much deeper and much more, much more accurate reason for all this attention to Joseph is that he's a case study. He is a case study in what it looks like for someone to suffer who doesn't deserve to suffer. And he's an, he's an opportunity to engage with what kind of God lets this happen and for what reasons. He's here, in other words, I think... First, to help Israel understand its own history, a history that's full of pain. Israel was a nation that had these promises that God was for them, was going to build them up and use them as a blessing to the nations. But their history, so much of it, was inconsistent with that hope. They were in, they were in bondage for a long time. They were, they were attacked by many hostile nations. They ended up in exile for a long time. And, and all through this history of, of pain. They could look back to this story as a guidepost for how they should view God's relationship to them in the midst of suffering. It's here to explain or to help us to understand, at least in part, what it looks like for someone who doesn't deserve it to suffer. So here's, what I, here's how I want to tr- approach the story this morning. It's a long one. I'm going to be flying at bird's eye level over a lot of these details. But it has a natural arc to it that we're going to trace out this morning. It starts with the story that it's almost like reading a passage out of Candide. It's Joseph going from bad to worse at every step. Just when it seems like he's got his footing again, it gets ripped out from under him. And there's no explaining why this has to happen. The first part of the story illustrates what all of us know, that there is a mystery behind suffering that we just can't really cut all the way through. But the story then turns in Egypt where he has an encounter with his brothers where, where he explains a bird's eye view on his suffering. So what we want to do is build to Joseph's theology of suffering, understand it, and then come back down to apply it and work it into what it looks like for us. That's the arc we're going to trace this morning, beginning with suffering and mystery. I'm going to go ahead and read the central passage for us today. Would you mind standing with me as we do that? We're going to read from from chapter 45. We're going to begin reading in verse 5. This is the word of the Lord from Genesis 45. And now, this is Joseph to his brothers. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now, flipping forward to Genesis chapter 50. We read from verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. The first part of the Joseph story, as I've said, it it reads almost like a passage out of Voltaire's Candide, or, or maybe as a story out of the Odyssey, out of Homer's Odyssey, of this guy journeying through a world that's foreign to him, trying everything he can to get towards this goal, or to at least get his feet under him, and, and having it jerked out from under him at every turn. Chapter 37 shows where the journey begins, of sorrows began. Joseph is the oldest son of the favored wife. Remember the story of Jacob and how he had the, these two wives, Leah and Rachel, and he clearly loved Rachel more than Leah, and so therefore he ended up loving Rachel's sons even more, and the oldest one was Joseph. Favored son of a favored wife, and his father's not shy about his attention, his affection. Most kids complain that their parents favor the other kids in the family if they've got siblings. That's a common complaint. In Joseph's case, Joseph's brothers had a case. He, his father clearly preferred him. And he even gave him some bling to illustrate it. He gives him this, this coat of all of these fancy colors. And apparently Joseph wore this thing everywhere. Because when we, when we see Joseph a little bit later on going on this trip to check out his brothers, he's got his coat on. He's taking this long journey and he's wearing his, his fancy clothing. He wouldn't take it off because it illustrated his father's distinct love for him. You can imagine that Joseph's brothers weren't happy about this. But there's still nothing here to suggest that Joseph does anything wrong at worst he's guilty of a of a really terrible naivety or maybe some sort of childlike arrogance at worst he's guilty of a of a mistake of an error in judgment he has these crucial dreams and decides he's going to tell his brothers about them joseph had two dreams both of them very similar he dreamed that he and his brothers were sheaves of grain and that somehow his I don't know what, a, what the singular of a sheaf is. It is a sheave. His sheave of grain was standing upright and theirs were bowing down to him. Then he dreamed that he saw the sun and the moon and 11 stars, the same number as his brothers, and all of them were bowing down to him. His dreams, which carried so much weight in this ancient world, clearly meant that his whole family was going to bow down to him. He tells his brothers, and it has the exact effect that you would think. They hate him for it. They're terribly jealous of him. And so when they're out tending their flocks out in the middle of nowhere and his father Jacob sends Joseph to go check up on him and bring back some sort of report, they see an opportunity that's ripe. On sight, seeing him coming, they decide they're going to kill him. And they utter what become the ironic words that set the pattern for the rest of the story. They say, we'll see what will come of his dreams. Ultimately, they lose stomach for killing him. They decide that, why not profit off of him if we can? We may as well not kill our own brother, shed his blood. We may as well go ahead and sell him to this slave trader that comes by on his way to Egypt. So they do that. And you can imagine Joseph at this point, a high school-aged kid, in the hands of hostile traders, headed away from everything that's comfortable to him, familiar to him, to who knows what future. And worst of all, he's condemned to this fate by his own brother's. If anyone was ever justified to wonder where is God, Joseph was that person. The next account in the story is of where he ends up in Egypt. He gets sold to this really powerful man named Potiphar, a guy who was an officer in the, the army of Egypt. And in his house, things start to turn around for Joseph. It starts to look like maybe he's onto to something. He's, everything he touches turns to gold. And, and Potiphar puts him in charge of his entire household course, what ends up bringing him down is what he refuses to touch. Potiphar's wife decides Joseph looks pretty good to her, and she tries to seduce him time and time again. Time and time again, Joseph refuses. He claims that he would be sinning not just against Potiphar, but would be sinning against God if he were to go along with her plan, and she can't take it. Finally, one day, She tries to seduce him and grabs hold of his cloak and he just runs for it. He has to get out of there. But he forgets his cloak and leaves it behind. Once again, just like before, it's a garment that does Joseph in. When Potiphar comes home, his wife's got the story all prepared. She's got the coat laying there next to her. It says, Joseph tried to attack me, tried to take advantage of me. We've got to get him out of here. And Potiphar reacted exactly as you'd expect him to, throws him into prison. So the story devolves. First, Joseph gets... And get sold into slavery for for nothing for doing nothing wrong whatsoever. Now he's he's put even lower than that. He's put into prison, into this pit of prison, and he's done it. He's he's had this happen to him specifically because he was faithful. He obeyed God and this is what happened. Doesn't stop there. There's another leg to the story of misfortune. Once again, God blesses him with authority in the prison. The prison guard or the master or whatever sees that Joseph is effective as an administrator, that everything he touches is turned to gold, and so he puts him in charge of running the prison. And there in prison, Joseph meets a couple of guys who have dreams. And, of course, of course you know from the beginning, dreams are what's moving this story along. Joseph is good at interpreting dreams, and they come to him wondering what has happened to them or what's going to happen them because of these dreams that they've had. One of them was a cupbearer for Pharaoh. The other one was, had been his, his baker. Both of them had been thrown into prison probably for suspicion of some sort of plot to take his life, Pharaoh's life. Well, their dreams, Joseph interprets as two opposite meanings. The one guy's dream, the cupbearer's, Joseph takes to mean that in three days he will be restored to his position, freed from jail and, and put back as Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, a, a position of power and prestige. The other guy, the chief baker, after three days would be killed. Three days later, both of those dreams come true. Now Joseph had told the cupbearer, telling him that he was going to be liberated from prison. He said, look, don't mind that I, 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 I'm happy to interpret this dream for you, but at least you can do is represent me well before Pharaoh when you get out. Tell him that I'm in here. I got sold against my will into this country. I'm, I'm in prison now because I, of something that I didn't do, an unjust charge. I deserve to be freed. You need to represent my case. And of course, that's exactly what this guy owes him. But as soon as he's free, he forgets all about Joseph. And two years go by. Joseph sitting in this prison cell, knowing he did nothing to deserve it. Powerless to get out. Now the story repeatedly refers to the love of God as prospering him, as giving him favor in the eyes of those that he's working for, as keeping him alive and and prosperous. But... But come on, he's still in prison. And Joseph, of all the, the patriarchs that we've looked at in Genesis, Joseph is the only one of them who hasn't done something terribly wrong. All these other guys were guilty of egregious, obvious sins. Joseph isn't. He's just He's been faithful. And yet Joseph is the one who can't catch a break. We see that bad things just happen. I think his story is there to illustrate that uh, there's a mystery we're never fully going to get behind. That Suffering comes even to those who are obedient, even to those who refuse to sin against God. And that even, it, 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 I think what illustrates as much as anything that we're never going to get behind this mystery is that, yes, we are headed for some, some passages here that explain that God was behind all of this, but it never these passages never explain why God couldn't have just handled things in a different way. If he's in complete sovereignty, sure, he's sending Joseph through all this stuff to to ultimately provide for his family and save people from famine. That's what we're headed for. But that doesn't explain why this was the only method that he could use to save people from famine. Why not just prevent the famine from happening at all? Ultimately, God has that power, right? The story doesn't even try to cut through the mystery of why Joseph had to endure all the suffering that he did. Ultimately, Joseph... In contrast to his father's, gets no appearance from God. There's no sort of theophany here where God meets with him and explains himself to him. Joseph endures all that he endures in silence, trusting that God is behind it all and seeking his good in spite of the fact that he's not speaking to him. So the main points in the story, the story as it devolves, it's there to show us that suffering just... Happens, And we will never fully know the specifics behind it. I think it's much more complex than the Bible is often given credit for. But that's not the end of the story, is it? We get to see the story from beginning to end. And seeing from that perspective, the story of Joseph illustrates that God governs everything, even evil and suffering, towards the fulfillment of His promises. The story turns on yet another dream. Now, up, up until this point, I think it's been important not to try to see the story from the whole big perspective, but to, to enter it from Joseph's perspective and to see how horrible this series of events would have been. But now, in this case, we do have the benefit of a sort of bird's eye view. We get to see Joseph having his story resolved, getting some insight into what it is that, that he's experienced. Again, the narrative turns on a dream. Pharaoh has a dream, and the cupbearer, who Joseph had, had favorably uh, in, interpreted this dream for him uh, just two years before, remembers Joseph and tells Pharaoh, when, when Pharaoh can't find anyone else to interpret his dream, to go check out Joseph and see what he's got. The dream is, is, is a twofold dream, dream, both, both emphasizing the same basic point. He sees fat cows coming up out of the Nile River who, who, who roam and graze and they look really healthy. And then all of a sudden there are these ugly and thin cows that come out and eat them. Then he imagines these seven stalks of grain that come up and they're really plump and they're full of good, uh, of good usable grain. And then those are consumed by little empty pieces of grain, stalks, what have you. So Joseph comes to him and tells him, well, clearly what this dream means is that there's going to be seven years of plenty. and After that, there's going to be seven years of famine. Pharaoh buys it. Pharaoh asks Joseph next, what would you do to try to prepare for this kind of, this kind of situation? Joseph says, well, if it was me, I'd store up a bunch of stuff during the years of plenty, and then when there's, when there's nothing, then people can come here and draw from these storehouses. And not only will you save people, but you can make a killing off of it because you'll, it's a supply and demand thing. Well, Pharaoh is so pleased with his answer that he makes Joseph over, he puts Joseph over his entire kingdom. What we have here is a guy who goes from a pit in Canaan to second in command over the mightiest empire in the known world. But the really remarkable thing about this turn of events is that his rise to power isn't the point point of the story is not that everything works out great for Joseph in the end. The real resolution of the story comes next. It's after Joseph has been put into this position and after his plan works perfectly that we see the point all along. The famine is not just limited to Egypt. It's going on back in Canaan as well. So Jacob sends Joseph's brothers to Egypt knowing that they have this storehouse of grain. He sends them there to try to get some grain that can get them through these lean years. When they approach Joseph, they approach him bowing down just as Joseph's dreams had indicated they would. Things begin to happen exactly as he predicted. Now, we don't have time to get into the details of the way that Joseph interacts with his brothers. If you haven't read this part of the story in a long time, I highly recommend it. It is a beautiful piece of storytelling full of, of irony and I think even some humor. The gist of it is that Joseph decides not to just give up the, the grain immediately, but to test his brothers to see if they've learned from their mistakes. So he puts them through a whole series of tests that shows him clearly that they have, that now they understand what they were wrong. that they were wrong to treat Joseph in the way that they had, that they, they're now protecting his brother Benjamin in a way that they didn't protect him. They're showing honor to his father Jacob, and at the end he's satisfied that they have changed enough and he reveals himself. And when he does... Though they are afraid for their lives, he makes one of the most remarkable statements in all of Genesis. It's the the passage from chapter 45 that we read a couple minutes ago. Verses 3 through 8 especially. What we have there is Joseph summarizing his faith in God's providence. But it's even more radical than you may have recognized. Consider what he's claiming. He's claiming that everything that had happened so far them selling him into Egypt, but then Egypt's having this plenty and this famine. All of these things that have happened to Egypt, to the mightiest empire in the world, he's claiming that those things happened precisely so that his family would be saved. The best analogy that I can think of is almost as if an Irish immigrant in the 19th century shows up at Ellis Island claiming that that the American Revolution and the Industrial Revolution that provided all of these jobs, everything that had made America what it was, it happened specifically so that this Irish family could come and and not not be killed in the potato famine in Ireland. It's almost like everything was done just for them. That's what Joseph's claiming here, essentially. They were nothing. They were a family that just lived on land that wasn't theirs. Egypt was the mightiest empire in that known world, and Joseph is claiming that God superintended these events on a massive scale specifically to save his family. That's why I think that this account is much more specific than a nice story that offers an example of God's ability to work things for good. It's not just that. The point isn't that God will eventually bless you. If you stay faithful like Joseph did, eventually God is going to make everything right and, and you're going to have the material security that Joseph had. The point is not Joseph's position. The point is about God's design to protect the promise. The point is about God's commitment to His plan for salvation. Even Joseph himself seemed to re- seems to recognize that he is not the point of his own story. He says that all of these things happened to him. This is verse 7 of chapter 45. God sent me here through everything that's happened. Why? To preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. The point of Joseph's story, the point of everything that happened in this, to, 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 to this point is that he... Was there to preserve the line that God had promised would ultimately lead to the salvation of the world. Joseph understands that his suffering is subordinate to God's design to save. Everything that happens, from the great sweeping events of history to the smallest individual encounters, serve God's purpose to save for himself a people. Joseph's point is that they serve the gospel. Now, here's why that matters with a few minutes we have left, I want to drill down deep here. Because this, I think, is where we have to encounter Joseph's story. Clearly, we don't get the benefit of hindsight that Joseph enjoyed when he expressed his faith in providence. We're, at, we're not able to see the end from the beginning of our stories in the same way that we can with Joseph's. Ultimately, I mean, honestly, and obviously... We're living inside of our stories. They're still unfolding. They're still going on. Ultimately, in this life, we may never understand the purpose behind the evil and the suffering that we or those that we love experience. But as believers, what we've got to hold to is not some sort of escapist belief that everything's going to work out okay, that we will never be forced to experience any kind of pain. What we hold to is the promise that guided all God's action here in Joseph's story. The same promises that ultimately lead to Jesus. We're told that the same promises, the promise of God to save for himself a people, govern everything that happens to us as we look to the past, as we examine the present, and we look towards the future. So what, we, what this story calls for us is an ability to live in, Inside the mystery that is each of our stories, with the ability, the inability rather, to to see the specifics and how they relate to the whole, but to live in light of that mystery, of that ambiguity, with a firm grasp on the promises that we trust are governing everything that happens. A promise that one day we will be conformed to the image of Jesus and we will stand with Him accepted before God for all eternity. There's a balance here, in other words and it's one we can't afford to miss. On the one hand, there's always going to be impenetrable mystery when it comes to the will of God and suffering. Again, I mentioned this earlier, but even even though even after the big reveal and, from Joseph, and even after we know that all this stuff had happened so that God would protect Jacob and, and Jacob's sons, protect this chosen line as it moved forward in history, even after we know that that's what was going on, we still don't understand why God didn't just prevent the famine from happening in the first place. Why didn't he preserve the line that way? We don't know. The details may never be clear to us, and we've got to get comfortable living with that mystery. But on the other hand, God has revealed himself clearly. There's mystery over here, but over here he said he's given us a certain set of promises that are as clear as can be, and he has has committed himself, his own name, to making sure that those promises get fulfilled, that he's going to redeem for himself himself a people against all odds, and that everything in history serves those purposes somehow. As believers, that means that every little thing that happens to us, every disappointment, every injustice that we suffer, every instance of pain or sorrow, all of these things are designed specifically to conform us to the image of Jesus. I think the Joseph story, and ultimately the story of the gospel, is about what one Old Testament scholar called the hidden but sure way of God. I love that phrase. The Joseph story could be summarized as about the hidden but sure way of God. The details are fuzzy to us and may never be anything but that. The overarching purpose is as clear as the promises God has made to us. I think the best way that that I can visualize this tension, this balance, is is when you're preparing for a long trip. And as you know, in the 21st century, that means Google Maps unless you have one of those GPS things. I don't have one of those, so I use Google Maps and, and, and have it in my phone. If you're preparing for a, a trip of hundreds of miles and you do the search and you look at it in map view instead of the list directions view, what you get looks pretty much like a straight line. It's zo- really zoomed out, and you can trace from Nashville to our, our latest long trip was down to Charleston. So it's just basically this long line from Nashville to Charleston. If you zoomed in on it, you would see that you had five or ten different turns just to get yourself to the interstate in Nashville, right? There's a lot of twisting and turning that serves the purpose of that long journey that looks so clear from a bird's-eye view. But, but you can't see the twisting and turning from that big view. I think our lives as, as Christians who are living in, the, in a world full of suffering and evil, who know that we have these promises from God that we can hold on to, our, our lives are lived more in that zoomed-out view. What we're to, supposed to do is try to claim and hold fast to the promise that that we are going to get from point A to point B, and that this is what it's going to look like from that bird's eye view. The, The twists and turns that it takes to get us there, we'll never ultimately understand the why and the wherefore, even as believers. What we have a promise of, though, is that God can work even the worst of evils towards the end of our redemption. We get that promise nowhere more clearly than in the gospel itself, in the fact that Jesus is killed unjustly, in the greatest act of evil in the history of the world. But his death, this great act of evil, his unimaginable suffering, ultimately serves the interests of God's promises being fulfilled. One of the best, one of the best applications of this truth that I've ever heard was I was uh, at a conference. Uh, number of years ago, and, and one of the speakers was a guy named Al Meredith, who had been the pastor of Wedgwood Baptist Church, and I think it's in Houston, and back in the late 90s, maybe early 2000s, this was one of those churches that had a gunman bust into a service, I think it was maybe a CU at the poll rally, and shoot up a bunch of people, and many people died, and this pastor was confronted by a, a reporter right after this had happened, outside the church building, and was asked, where was God? when these young people were killed while they were trying to worship? I remember when I heard him read that question back, I didn't know what I would have said if I had been him, confronted with that. And he said ultimately he didn't know where the answer came. He trusted it came from the Spirit. His answer was that God was in the same place then that he was when Jesus hung on the cross, when his own son hung on the cross. He was no less in control and no less no less working towards the purposes of his promise to save in one case than in the other. That's the balance we've got to strike. But let's be honest. This can be a tough, tough pill to swallow in the moment. It, even as believers, we struggle to understand why we have to endure so much pain if God really loves us and could stop it. Why is it so hard? What makes it so hard to hold fast to the promise that God is going to work out our salvation through anything that comes our way? I think, I think probably the most common reason for us as believers, and, and perhaps the most dangerous reason that it's hard, I think when we experience pain, it's natural for us to blame God, to get angry with Him, to draw back from a belief in a God who could let that happen. I've heard, said, I've even thought, I can't believe in a God who could let that happen to me. But that natural reaction reveals something deeper, I think, about the way that we view God. What we're saying when we, when we claim we couldn't believe in a God who could let this thing happen or have, let, allow this thing to be taken away from me, what we're saying is that there's something else besides God that we require along with God if we're going to embrace Him at all. That God Himself is not enough. That what we're signing up for is God plus the things that God gives me. I think what we're saying is that there's, there's got to be God plus financial security. A God plus a happy home life or God plus career success, or nothing at all. God without those things, a God who doesn't provide us with those things, is not a God worth trusting. Again, anger at God is rooted in, that, that, that could be rooted in circumstances. I think what it shows is that we think to be worth anything, God's got to provide us with certain things. He's got to be some sort of dispenser of favors to us. And we're angry because we believe that God is falling down on the job when He doesn't provide. Or we we come to believe that He's not a dependable source, that He's not worthy of trust. He's valuable. What What we're saying in that gut reaction is that God is valuable to us, not for who He is, but for what He does, for what He provides. And if that's the foundation for our Christian faith, if that's where our hope is ultimately rooted, then it's rooted in quicksand. Because those circumstances, those things that, that we use to give ourselves meaning, that we think God must provide us with, those things come and go. If Joseph's story is here to tell us anything, it's to tell us that suffering is coming, that, we, that, that life is going to hurt, that it is short and it is full of sorrow. A hope that's built not on the promise of God, but on the fulfillment of our shifting desires for comfort is a hope that just won't outlive the kind of suffering that Joseph endured and that ultimately each of us is probably going to have to endure at some level. In fact, we talked about this some last week. I think we can see the Christian life as a promise of pain. It's not some sort of bargain where we exchange worship for God. We give God worship and and obedience maybe to an extent and God then owes us X, Y, or Z, whatever, the fulfillment of our desires. It's not some sort of exchange. Rather, the Christian life is about God conforming us to the image of Jesus, working to make us more like Him. And that often means Him hitting us where it hurts most. It means Him exposing false idols wherever we harbor them, any other object of trust or value. God is committed to stripping those things away, whatever else we think we need besides Him to rest secure. And that's a painful process, but that's what it looks like for the old man to fall away and the new man to replace him. That's the way that salvation is described. Stepping out of an old man into a new one. It's death to sin and resurrection to new life. He's got to remove whatever it is we think we've got to have to make the Christian God worth allying with, to make His promises and the promises of the gospel possible and sweet to us. In place of those, in place of these false trusts, what He wants to establish in us is... Is, is something that I think one of the most powerful images for it is, is the tree planted by streams of water. Recently I heard Tim Keller preach a sermon on, um, on Psalm 1, and I loved what he did with that image. This tree that's planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, its leaf doesn't wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. That's, the, that's, that's Psalm 1's description of the happy man. The key to that tree is a deep root system next to this source of water that allows that tree to survive, even when the seasons change. There's no promise that winter is not coming, that lean times and pain and deprivation are not headed your way. But but when that tree experiences winter, what it forces the tree to do is to go deeper into its roots, to draw from the streams that give it life. Suffering is here, ultimately, to strip away whatever else made us pleasant. And secure and satisfied, to strip away the circumstances that make for summertime, and to drive us to the source of our security in the streams of living water that are the promises of the gospel. Suffering is about winter that drives us deeper. God promises Himself in the gospel, and He promises us that He's enough. These circumstances we go through, our pain, though we might lose everything else that matters to us, everything that's dear to us, nothing changes the fact that we're His, that He is ours, and that compared to that unchanging fact, everything else fades away like the grass. This is not meant to trivialize the pain that we go through. It's meant to replace a fixation on that pain with an anchor in the promises of God that's not going to fail no matter what comes our way. Nothing strikes the balance, I think, any better than the words from Isaiah of a description of all flesh as nothing but grass that withers and fades. Its glory is is passing and fleeting. That's suffering, a life that is short and full of sorrow. We see it all the time. But the word of the Lord stands forever. And that word is the gospel, the promise that God is for us in Jesus and that nothing can stop that. And just as Joseph's life, full of suffering, ultimately, ultimately worked towards the, the securing of those promises, so we, we have the promise that anything, however big or small, that happens to us is meant to make us more like Jesus. That's the promise of the gospel, and it's the only promise that will stand. Will you pray with me, please? Thank you, Lord, that you have not left us in our weakness and our insecurity, but you have come to us in Christ Jesus with a word that stands forever. We ask for eyes to see it and for hearts to believe it, to find joy in it and rest in it. We ask that you would forgive us for the anger that we experience when we don't get what we think we deserve from you, and we pray that you would replace that with an unshaking confidence in your love for us expressed so clearly in the gospel. We pray for a deep-rooted faith that, draw, that drives even deeper when our circumstances shift. We pray for you to work in us in a way that's supernatural. In other words, we know that what we need is ultimately something only you can give us. And so we turn to you with confidence that comes from our perfect representation by your Son, Jesus. We pray to you only in His name. Amen.